Hello and welcome to Adam and Eve, your feminist radio show on CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton and around the world on CJSR.com. My name is Marco Visconti. And my name is Rose Eva Forth Jenkins, and we'll be your hosts for today's episode of Adam and Eve. On today's episode, we're discussing the topic of feminism and mental health. We're going to hear Roseva's interview with Nicole Perry on the subject of feminist psychology. Afterwards, we're going to play a clip from our roundtable discussion on the negative effects of microaggressions with our guests, Rania Asharkawi and Quinn Buck. First up, we have Roseva's interview with Nicole Perry, who is a registered psychologist who describes her therapeutic approach as being collaborative and feminist at heart. Nicole also provides boundary setting and other group workshops. Here's that interview. Um, So I'm Nicole Perry. I'm a registered psychologist here in Edmonton, and I work from a feminist counseling perspective, specializing in helping people set boundaries, heal from sexual trauma, and become more shame resilient. Wonderful. And can you tell me uh, what that means to come from a feminist approach to psychology? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So there's a couple of things that I think are the foundation of it. It, Well, of course, one of the things is just being a feminist out there in my day-to-day life and tends to follow me to work too. Um, But yeah, specifically in a counseling way, it looks like a much more collaborative approach than your typical like, you know, I'm a professional, here's what you should do. And then the other person just does it. It's, you know, really, I'm here to Um, honor people's experiences, to support them as they walk through their lives, and, uh, you know, offer ideas and a perspective if that's what they want. But, you know, ultimately, we really uh, support people's wisdom in the room. Um, And so it's also much more, the second thing is, it's much more contextual of an approach, so that, um, well, you know, rather than believing the problems we experience are all in our head or that could be easily fixed through just shift in thought or shift in action, um, you know, I try to come from that perspective that's like, you know, we're all dealing with a pretty messed up world where there's a lot of pain and difficult expectations to navigate. And so, again, keeping that in mind um, can really help with the shame. Wonderful. Thank you. And earlier this year, you hosted a workshop on caregiving relationships. Can you tell me a bit more about these workshops and what that looks like? Yeah, so that one is a one-hour workshop. And um, for caregivers, it could be people who are caring for an aging parent or supporting um, a sibling or a partner who is experiencing mental health issues uh, you know, or, or pain and health issues. It could actually be all sorts of things, but in that I share some of what I've learned um, has helped me uh, be a support to people. And so some of the things we talk about is, you know, how we can basically stay in our own seat and not take on, um, take on the feelings that the person in front of us is feeling. You know, how do we compassionately engage with them without... Um, getting burnt out ourselves um, or feeling like we need to fix them, um, which, you know, leads to a lot of resentment and bitterness on both sides. Um, So that's a little bit of what we cover. And that workshop itself then ends up being a bit of a precursor to a longer boundaries group that I do. So it's a standalone one that people could come to 
um, and you know get something out of and some new tools and ideas. And then if people are hungry for more and they're like, I do have a hard time. I take on other people's stuff. Like, I'm always the emotional support. I'm really drained. Um, then they might be interested in taking this eight-week group that I offer a couple times a year on setting boundaries. Can you talk to me about emotional labor? Yeah, this is one of the most common things that I'm hearing when I start to talk to people about setting boundaries. And I think especially for those of us who've been socialized as female, it's this um, thing that we've grown up with. And, you know, other people have been written, been writing about it beautifully, um, really giving examples of how that shows up. Um, not just through what we're taught explicitly, but all the things we're expected to do almost implicitly. Um, and so for a lot of the people that I work with, you know, they move from being caregivers at work, um, whether or not they're in helping professional professions, and many of them are, to then being caregivers at home, whether that be for a partner or partners, again, you know, aging parent, um, some of my clients being uh, parents themselves as well. And, you know, that never ending attuning to other people, being on without appreciation or even acknowledgement of the fact that it is labor. Um, you know, sometimes people say that thing like, oh, you know, if you're doing what you love, like it shouldn't be hard work, something like this, right? It shouldn't be hard work. And I'm like, no, it really is. Like, even um, I'm a mom, so I think about, like, I love my daughter. I think she's really joyous to spend time with, and it's still labor. You know, that's still, at the end of the day, is, you know, take something out of me. Um, so I think the conversation now is turning toward, well, first of all, being able to recognize that for ourselves. Yes, you know, that is labor. That is work. Um, and there are particular strategies and ways of showing up with that that can help support it to be less draining. Uh, but then on a more societal level, being able to recognize it and think about, you know, what kinds of supports are we giving the single moms that we know or, um, you know, the people who are supporting a family member who has mental health issues um, so being able to, yeah, both navigate that from the individual level and also thinking about the change that we can work toward together. And you were talking about some strategies that people can use to um, not feel so burnt out and drained. Can you talk a bit about those strategies and what that kind of looks like? Yes, I have so many to share. Um, so I think what I would start with is thinking about how we show up in relation to people. So this is when I said, you know, sitting in your seat. What that really means is that I can be a witness to people's experiences. Um, you know, I can be that person to walk with them, um, but I'm not here to fix or change people. Um, and that mindset alone, that perspective alone, um, creates just a lot more space for everyone. Um, when we can come from that place of, you know, what really is my role here? What really is my job? And that's even true for our family members and friends. You know, is it my job to figure out what they should do about their relationship? Is it my job to figure out, you know, how they're going to handle this harassment they're facing at work? 
Um, you know, the answer is no, right? But, <laughs> um, you know, so what can I do? And focusing on that. And, you know, part of my job gets to be things like seeing the resilience in people, um, supporting what they're already doing to navigate these tricky situations, um, and just being here to listen and, you know, show that, hey, I get it. Um, so that's a good place to start. And then for navigating burnout, I think about things like um, being able to contain the emotional labor or uh, caregiving that we do. Um, so, for example, in my job, I'm able to have specific time boundaries around the work that I do. And I really hold those. So at the end of an hour, I can say, okay, even if our conversation isn't done or we haven't come to some sort of resolution, um, we're going to take a pause there today. Um, and I feel, you know, now that I've been doing this for a number of years, more and more confident being able to do that and to know that, yeah, we don't actually have to figure it out all today, um, which is where some of my clients, I think, struggle with. Like they're talking to a friend and suddenly the conversation has gone on for three hours and everyone's just going around in loops, feeling totally hopeless so I like to think about creating some kind of container, which is sometimes a container about time. You know, I'm going to give 20 minutes to this or let's talk for an hour. Um, and sometimes that container is, you know, I, I can't do that today. Um, what about this other day instead? Um, or, you know, I have to go to bed now and not feeling bad about that. Oh, there's so much I could say here, but there you go. Sitting in our seat and thinking about trying to find ways to contain the caregiving that we are doing. Yeah, that's wonderful. I already feel like I'm learning a lot. I could employ those myself. Can you talk about the gender disparity that shows up sometimes in caregiving relationships? Uh, yeah, for me, and I guess I do work mostly with people who identify as women or been socialized as women. And so, you know, these this stuff gets to be really relevant. Um, but yeah, I have seen it show up in the broader culture is just the, the increasing, um, not increasing, but the, well, disparity is the right word, um, that people who have been socialized as women are expected to perform these laborious tasks, to do the caregiving and to do it out of the goodness of their hearts. Um, really without recognition or understanding of what a toll that can take to attune to someone, to support them. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. I, I see, you know, a lot of the people I know who've been socialized male, you know, they're not getting that same message. Um, it's somehow okay for them to set boundaries, whereas for a lot of women it can be seen as rude or uncaring or not being a good friend. Um, when they try to set those boundaries, even though they're really actually trying to be kind to themselves and the other person. Yeah, great. And um, kind of going back to the workshops, I was kind of wondering about, you talked about how the workshops, there's a lot of um, more people identified as women. And within that, I was wondering if there's a specific kind of um, demographic or age range or kind of what the average person taking one of these workshops looks like. Um, I'm 
just thinking about it, and in the more recent ones, we've had like quite a um, quite an age spread. Um, we tend to focus it just on people who are women or non-binary um, because of the different types of messages that we get about boundaries. Um, like in the group, one of the things that we talk about is, yeah, like what have we been taught? Where are those messages coming from? And and women are taught something very, very specific about boundaries. Like basically, you're not allowed to have them is the message that we're given. And so we have to work really hard to to combat that and to deal with the real consequences of setting boundaries. You know, like there's going to be some people in our lives that are really supportive of that journey and are like, awesome, you're supporting yourself, you're prioritizing you. Um, and unfortunately, there's also going to be pushback, you know, people who accuse us of being aggressive or uh, unfair and thoughtless. Even simply, um, you know, I think about people who are setting boundaries in dating relationships and then are getting this pushback like, it's not fair you didn't give me a chance. It's like, we don't owe you a chance. Um, so, you know, these real consequences. But yeah, quite, a, um, quite an age range. Um, and it tends to be a mix of people working on boundaries in their professional lives. So I get a, a number of people, um, whether it be social work, uh, you know, nursing, teaching, this sort of thing, or um, people who are setting boundaries in their relationships, um, trying to navigate that in their partnerships. Um, some people, it's more focused on their family. Um, and what else was I going to say? So kind of wide range of topics um, or areas that they're setting boundaries in. Um, but yeah, full deep dive into what is your relationship with boundaries? How can you learn to listen to yourself and honor what your body is telling you? Hope that helps. Yes, that definitely t helps. Um, I really liked your last comment about what your body's telling you. Um, I'm kind of wondering how these um, boundaries and relationships, how does that kind of affect our bodies almost? Um. Okay, first I'll share with you the definition that I created for boundaries. Um, so I decided, I don't know if you're allowed to just define things, but I decided um, that boundaries are the external expression of our internal limits. So what that really means is we start with having a relationship with our bodies. You know, listening to um, the headache or the, the twinge in our gut um, or all these ways, these signals that our body has um, to tell us that's not okay for me or I'm feeling depleted. Um, now, what we often do, especially if we've been socialized as women, is override those cues, ignore them. Um, we say, that's not important, or I should be able to do this. Maybe even other people can. Um, and when we do that chronically or even um, you know, in a big way for a short amount of time, our bodies really feel it. You know, a lot of my clients will come to me to work on boundaries because they've completely burnt out and now they're on stress leave at work or they're taking a semester off um, or they're dealing with chronic pain issues, you know, GI, migraines. Um, their body is really telling them, you have to stop. And they're finally listening. 
kind of how do you see the importance of self-care? Yeah, such a big topic. Um, I think it all falls in line because, um, you know, maybe this is a feminist approach to self-care that rather than it be this checklist of things we just need to get through, um, you know, to be okay in the world, uh, I think of self-care as how can we really listen to ourselves and what it is that nourish us. Um, so sometimes that is the typical self-care ideas like going for a bath, being out in nature, you know, having some tea. Um, but sometimes when we listen to ourselves, it's, oh, I need community or I need to shut the world out for a while um, or I have to pay these bills or, you know, so many other things that self-care can be. So again, it comes back to that same idea of if we can listen to ourselves, our, you know, our deeper longings, what nourishes us, what, what feels really important, what makes us feel alive and full of joy, then we're doing pretty good self-care and we're respecting our boundaries. So I guess maybe if there's any last advice you'd like to give um, kind of everyone when it comes to setting boundaries, um, something you'd like people to know. I think I might just reiterate a bit of what we just shared there, that listen to your bodies. If you're feeling burnt out, resentful, um, like you're pushing beyond your limits, you know, give space to that. Hear that message. The exact, you know, how you're going to communicate that and what you'll do differently in your life, um, you know, that part is actually, um, you know, tends to be a little bit easier to navigate once we're in a relationship with ourselves and really listening to what our body and our emotions have to share with us. So listen to your bodies. Wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Absolutely. And as a final little note, if people are curious about learning more about boundaries, you can find me on the web at feministcounselloredmonton.com. I'm on Instagram at this.feminist.therapist and, you know, Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that as well. So um, don't hesitate to reach out if you want to know more. One last thing that just occurred to me is uh, when your workshops are occurring that you could let people know. Yeah, I usually run those throughout the year. So one of the best ways is to sign up for my newsletter so that you get the invites when the workshops come out. Um, I do have the dates for the group. So the next um, Boundaries group is starting in March. It um, goes for eight weeks, running on Wednesday nights. So you get 20 hours with a registered psychologist um, and a number of other people, obviously, in the group who can share their perspectives, their, offer their support and be there to journey with you. Welcome back to Adam and Eve, your feminist radio show on CJSR. My name is Rose Eva Forth-Jenkins. And my name is Marco Visconti. We just finished listening to Rose Eva's interview with Nicole Perry on feminist psychology. Next up, we have a clip from a roundtable discussion Rose Eva and I had with our fellow Adam and Eve producer, Lisa Pruden, and our special guests, Rania Asherkawi and Quinn Buck, on the topic of microaggressions. Don't ask people Googleable questions. Yes. If you can Google what language they speak in Palestine, which is obviously Arabic, but anyways, (laughs) 
don't like follow up with a questionnaire once you've already kind of asked a bit of a personal question. Hi, my name is Rania, and um, I'm a student here at the U of A. I'm in my fourth year and last year of political science. My name is Quinn. I work in social work with high-risk youth, and I am a part of this year's Next Up cohort with Rania and Raziva. So we're here to talk about microaggressions, and I thought in case the listeners don't know what this term is, um, we could maybe just help define it. But maybe I could get you two to define it rather than me talking. What, how would you describe a microaggression? I would describe a microaggression as something that usually starts with, I'm not racist, but, <laughs> mm. um, or doesn't start with that. But if you kind of planted that phrase before that sentence, it would usually um, form a more coherent thought. Mm-hmm. So those things that you think aren't really a problem or are more so you know, just spread from your own curiosity that actually are quite problematic. Yeah, and I think on another level it could be, my favorite is tokenism. Mm. <laughs> when everybody's like, you're not like other natives. And I'm always like, what do you mean not like other natives? Like, how how are other natives? Um, and that always bothered me. Yeah, like the stereotypes and tokenism. Yeah. So a microaggression can be defined as a subtle verbal or nonverbal behavior or remark which serves to demean a person based on assumptions made about their identity. Uh, another another thing I found is that they're typically brief and occur repeatedly throughout a person's day, and they're overwhelmingly experienced by people of marginalized communities. Uh, and they can also be intentional or unintentional. Can we think of some examples that we've experienced or observed? I think the first time I can remember experiencing a microaggression um, and Quinn and Roseva know this story, but when I was in the third grade, my class was um, a part of a Peter Pan production, or that was like our class play of the year, and I was cast as Tiger Lily, and Tiger Lily, I don't know if you remember, has one line, and I remember feeling so disappointed because I wanted more lines, I wanted a bigger role, and I didn't realize, I think, until years later that the only reason I was cast as Tiger Lily is because I was the only non-white person in the class. Um, So that's, I would say, a microaggression that may have been unintentional or, no, I think my casting was quite intentional, but that's microaggressions, I guess. You don't think there is any bad intent behind it, but here we are over a decade later. I don't know. Growing up as an indigenous human being, I think microaggressions were always just kind of present, if not from external forces, then from internal forces as well with lateral violence and stuff like that. And so you had to grow up with a very thick shield. And I always remember growing up in schools that they would just treat the indigenous students very, very differently. Um but in very, very subtle ways. You know, we got special perks for just being Indigenous, and it was kind of like, well, now we have other students looking at us because you guys are kind of, what's the right word? Sensationalizing us? Mm. Um, and they're starting to question our 
benefits when we're just trying to get an education and we're trying to grow. Um, and so that would be like obviously the earliest form of microaggressions that I can kind of think about because I know a lot of very intelligent indigenous people who have the same stories as well. Do you remember a time where you responded to a microaggression when after it happened? It's always for me like what could I have said, what should I have said is always afterwards, but at the moment it's really hard to when it's in the middle of a conversation and to bring that up I find that really difficult. Even though I feel like it should be my role, especially as a white person, to bring that up to other people. Sometimes microaggressions can be so subtle that I don't fully catch them until some time has passed. So yeah, like I had a bus driver say to me once that I run like a girl. And in fairness, I had a lot of bags and was running to the bus extremely awkwardly. I could feel it. And he meant it as a commiseration, like, ah, we both know that that was awkward. But he chose to do that by saying you run like a girl. It wasn't until like I was getting off the bus where I was like, what? wait a second. Do you think it matters if it's an intentional or unintentional aggression or not? A part of me feels like it is most definitely worse if it is intentional because you know that they had to actually think of that comment. Just because of the line of work that I do when it comes to unintentional microaggressions, I'm always quick to try to understand where it's coming from. Is it a learned behavior? Do they Are they just ignorant in the sense that they just don't know about what they're talking about? And trying to get to the bottom of that. Um, and I find that that also kind of deflects aggression and confrontation in the sense that they know you're trying to have an understanding with them. I think I can more easily identify when microaggressions are occurring in a conversation that I'm having about someone who isn't me or a group that isn't myself. Because I think because I'm not visibly Muslim or, I don't know, like, Palestinian is not tattooed on my forehead. <laughs> I don't experience many microaggressions that I'm aware of that are very explicit. I don't know. Maybe I haven't reflected hard enough on it, but I do experience microaggressions that come after the fact that someone like knows my ethnicity, um, especially. And it's usually just like a lecture on what they know about like Palestine if anything and then just like grilling me on like the conflict and questions after that which seems I think as a conversation starter for them but to me I don't know you just you don't really want to talk about Middle Eastern politics in like the middle of someone's kitchen yeah (laughs) I know what you mean though in terms of like not always being the explicit target of a microaggression because I'm mixed as well, so my father's Italian and my mother's Arab and South Asian, but I look very white and my name is super Italian. So oftentimes um, people talk to me not realizing that I'm also brown and Muslim. So I'm sort of indirectly targeted by a microaggression they might say because they think they're talking to another white person. Uh, I have uh, Métis and Cree heritage and Often people have no idea about that. I mean, I'm very fair-skinned and often white past, but uh, I kind of smugly enjoy those moments when I realize I'm at a table with someone who is racist and they're letting their ideas about what they think Indigenous people are just free fall because they think 
it's almost I feel like I'm almost infiltrated a scenario and then I like to get to the moment where it's like well but actually <laughs> I'm yeah I'm kind of what you're talking about I find it hard to get over like feeling unsafe in those situations when someone's telling me all this stuff they think about Muslims because I'm like I'm worried about how will I exit this situation as long as they're not intoxicated, I will definitely wade into those waters. It's almost like you're a spy, and then you're listening to these conversations. <laughs> yeah. And more often than not, when you do call out these microaggressions in front of somebody, they will stop and they will shut down because their brain doesn't know what else to do. Because they're kind of like, okay, well, now I just identified myself as a racist in front of you, and you called me out on it. Um, what do we talk about now? You know, and at that point, that's a good cue to, like, pack your stuff up and leave while they're kind of, like, trying to find their bearings. Mm. Um so yeah, I would definitely, I advocate both approaches. Um, safety first, though. Oh, yeah. Welcome back to Adam and Eve, your feminist radio show on CGSR. My name is Rose Eva Forks Jenkins. And my name is Marco Visconti. We just finished listening to a roundtable discussion on microaggressions with Roseva, Lisa Pruden, and myself, and our guests, Rania Asharkawi and Quinn Buck. And that's it for today's show. Thank you very much for tuning in, and thank you very much to our guests. Have an excellent, adamant evening. We produce this week's show in the studios of CJSR FM 88.5 in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, on Treaty 6 territory. We're grateful to be on Blackfoot, Nakota Sioux, Soto, Métis, and Papa Chase territory. <laughs>